Matthews from Liz, who would love to be here with us uh, this evening. Uh, we love your church. We really do love your church. A lovely fellowship, great spirit among you of uh, unity and fellowship, and God's grace is uh, upon you. It's great to be here, but uh, we had a phone call of somebody who's coming up from Manchester who's going to stay overnight with us for um, a few weeks, uh, a few days, sorry, and um, so he's arriving between 7 and 7.30, so we'll, uh, she had to be in for that, so there we go, missing out this evening. Right, we're going to have a, an, we should have an image come up on the screen in a moment. And let's see, I'll pop that there for now. Where are we? What do you see? A big white block. That's a good answer. What, what might a sculptor see in a big white block? Something like this. Michelangelo's David, yes. Okay. Most people would see a block of marble. A master sculptor will see a statue hiding within the raw material, and all it needs is a bit of chiseling, a lots of bumps and knocks, and a bit of abrasion, and finally that image that they have in mind will come to pass. And in the same way, I sense that from my experience as a Christian, my understanding of the Scriptures, experience of life, that there is a sense in which God looks at us and He sees what we can become in Christ. For we know that God's intention is that we become like Christ. And all of the experiences of life can be formative in that direction, including the bumps and the knocks and the abrasive experiences that we go through, and it's godly responses to the hardships that we experience that make us more like Jesus. It's certainly true with Joseph. Uh, we've seen in the story of Joseph so far that uh, he was betrayed. I'm going to take my jacket off. It's quite warm here. You've got the heating on, obviously. Excuse me. Joseph's experience so far um, in the stories, it's, he's been betrayed. He's ha had to handle temptation through Potiphar's wife. He's gone through deep disappointment. Eventually, he is successful, and he has to learn how to handle success. But what about his feelings? What about his emotions? And if we're looking at a series here of handling life like Joseph, how do we handle emotions? How do we handle emotions like Joseph handled emotions? Well, how does he handle a situation when one day his brothers suddenly and unexpectedly arrive because there's a famine in the whole of the land and they've come to Egypt in order to buy food. And he recognizes them, or they don't recognize him. All of those emotions are stirred up as he looks at their faces and it's unmistakable. 
Benjamin's missing. wonder where he is. The father's not with them. I wonder whether he's still living. Questions are going through his mind. And like a chess player, Joseph is going to take his time. Well, we're going to uh, have a look at the story as it's found in Genesis chapter 42. Uh, the, we'll just read the chapter here. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? That's a telling phrase, isn't it? A bit of blaming going on here. Maybe they were thinking that something's happening here. We were getting punished. He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I have told you, your spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, and as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them in, all in, in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, and the rest of you go back, go and take grain back to your starving households. You must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? You wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away to them, began to weep, then came back and spoke to them again. He said, Simeon, he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill the bags with grain, and he put each man's silver back in the sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, 
they loaded the grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? And they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. We said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father, one is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, and I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And they saw, when they and their father saw the money in their pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Joseph said, My son, Will not, my son will not go down with you, there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Okay, how did Joseph handle his emotions? Well, we're on the keep calm theme tonight. Keep calm and stay graceful. He kept calm and he stayed graceful or gracious. We'd easily have understood it if Joseph immediately had flared up in a temper and with the power that he had, taken revenge on his brothers immediately. He could have rationalized it that God's brought them into this situation and he's delivered them into my hands so that I can see justice is done against them. He could have done that. But Joseph was not like that. He had not been shaped in that way. The experiences, the bumps and the knocks and the abrasive experiences of life had changed him within to a more mellow person, a wise person, a person who had been walking with God, a person who had been listening to God, and a person who had become more godly in his ways. So he didn't fly off the deep end, and lose control of his emotions. Instead, he kept a cool head and took control of the situation. He took advantage of it. They didn't recognize him. And in a situation when emotions are running high, especially when we're taken by surprise, it is all too easy for us to lose control of our emotions and say something or do something which has long-term consequences and which we regret. And the less mature we are, the more likely we are to give free rein to our feelings and act in unconstructive ways. 
Joseph had plenty of time and plenty of opportunity to learn how to handle his emotions. Many a time he had been unjustly treated, and there was a battle undoubtedly going on within him at times as to what to do in a situation where you're experiencing injustice, hurt, and pain. And as we've already seen in the life of Joseph, he could have become embittered, or he could have become more godly instead. And he chose to invest in his better nature. There's a story of an old Cherokee Indian who one evening spoke with his grandson about a battle that goes on within us. And he described it in this way. He says, my son, there's a battle between two wolves inside us. It is a terrible fight between these two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, and empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and in every person, every other person too. Grandson thought for it, about it for a moment, and then said to his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. It's the one you feed that will become the stronger. And there, my thoughts immediately turn to Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, where he describes the two natures within us. In this way, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think it's those who continually practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The fruit of the Spirit is or includes self control. And Joseph had this in abundance. And we become more Christ-like every time we opt to reign in the sinful nature and respond instead to the grace of God given to us by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us so that the fruit of the Spirit in our character, and it's one fruit with a ninefold description. It's not nine different fruits on a tree as we uh, quite conveniently do for the Sunday school children, whatever. It's one fruit with a, a ninefold description. It's growing, transforming, changing character that becomes more Christ-like the more we respond to God's grace given to us in Christ. What else have we got? How else did he respond? Keep calm and take your time. He pretended to be a stranger. He recognized them. 
They didn't know him. He was 17 years of age when they sold him to the Egyptians. A young boy dressed in maybe shepherd's clothing, whatever. Now it's 20 years later, he's nearly 40. He's dressed entirely differently. We don't know in which other ways he had changed, but they wouldn't have expected to see him in charge of Egypt. And he spoke to them in an Egyptian language and used an interpreter. So he cleverly disguised himself from them. We've got that telling line. In uh, verse 9 of Genesis 42, he remembered his dreams about them. Remember? Bowing down, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, bowing down to me. And the fulfillment of what God had spoken into his heart was about to begin. So he holds them in custody and he allows himself time, the time that he needed to think things through and to work through his emotional response. And sometimes we need time to work through our emotions. We would be ill-advised to make bold decisions over matters over which we have been hurt. Bold decisions too quickly, that is. Uh, All of a sudden, too hastily or without thinking things through. We know this in life, but it is so tempting when we've gone through a hard time and been hurt to actually respond straight away to it, not give time to think about it, because we think with our gut, we think with the heart rather than the head in the heat of a moment. And it's far wiser to take time to work things through. Joseph had a lot to forgive, and it is right that we forgive. But working through the emotional side of forgiveness takes time. It's all very well to say to another Christian who's been hurt, ah, but we're supposed to, you're supposed to forgive. God commands you to forgive. You know, forgiveness is one of the hardest things that we face, is it not? Because when we're hurt, how can you feel anything other than the victim, the than the person who has been wounded by someone else. And we can say to God, I don't know how to forgive. I want to forgive. I'm supposed to forgive, but I can't forgive. Well, actually, it's maybe a miss of an understanding of forgiveness because forgiveness is a choice. Rather, you can't change the way we feel, but we can choose to forgive. We can say in a prayer, uh, we forgive, uh, was it um, in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a confession of faith. It is a choice. Feelings can catch up with that in time. But it is essentially a choice. Counseling is a very helpful process for people who have been hurt. To be able to have someone listen to them and to express the way they feel, the way you feel, the way I feel, in times which, in which we are being eaten up by pain and, and, and uh, hurt. 
he allowed himself the time that he needed. Can you remember a time when you have acted too quickly, too hastily? You've ended up saying or doing something that later on you regret, but you can't take back those words or change those actions. Stay calm and take your time. Okay, a third one. Keep calm and ask questions. This was a, a good tactic that he, um, he came up with. He asked questions, where, did you come, where do you come from? And he began to pry and to say things to them that were inquiring. They replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who live in the, the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with the father and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He's probing. He's questioning his brothers with two aims. He wants to find out about the family. Benjamin's not with them. Where is he? He wants to assess whether or not his brothers have changed from being as wicked as they were when they betrayed him. And through questioning, Joseph learns a lot. He learns about them. He overhears their conversation, though they don't know that he understands their language, for they don't know who he is. Verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. He saw how distressed, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. When Joseph overheard all this, we read, he turned away from them and began to weep but then came back and spoke to them again. He learned for the first time the kinds of conversations that had gone on between them when they were either going to kill him or sell him to the Egyptians. And it would have helped him to deal with the hurt. In recent years, there's been a, a movement towards, towards uh, what's called restorative justice, it's when victims and perpetrators come together in order to give a victim an opportunity to confront a perpetrator. Somebody has burgled your house, they get caught, and you go and you get the opportunity to meet them. In 2012, the justice minister at the time um, said of this, I've talked to both victims and perpetrators Offenders have said meeting their victims is one of the worst and most difficult things they have had to do. They've said it was a moment of truth when they came face to face with what they had done. And he went on to say it's about getting closure for victims. The crime itself is a trauma. The victims say they feel outsiders in the normal process of dealing with the crime. Talking to victims, you find they say, when I 
when I met him, he seemed such a pathetic figure, or he didn't frighten me anymore, or I see how he was being handled. I see how he was being handled, and I was satisfied. And this is like a little bit of restorative justice that was going on between them. Take time. Keep calm and ask questions. Keep calm and make a plan. He came up with a plan. Staying gracious, taking his time, asking questions, enabled Joseph to make a plan. This was the outworking of the fruit of self-control. Simeon was to remain until they sent back Joseph's brother, who was the only other brother to Rachel. They shared the same mother, Joseph and Benjamin shared the same mother, and he loved Benjamin and he wanted to see him. So he acts wisely here. There is a passage in Scripture in the New Testament, Paul's letter to Timothy, in which he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. With all that's going on in North Korea at this time, and with a president in the USA who appears to be unpredictable in many ways, now would be a good time to remember Paul's letter to Timothy and pray for people in authority and in power. Egypt was privileged to have such a wise and godly person in a high place of authority as Joseph was in a time of crisis, and his brothers too were fortunate that Joseph had been transformed into a more godly person than uh, as time went by, and they became the beneficiaries of that. But there is an application for us also. It pays to take time whenever we're called upon to make decisions that have far-reaching consequences. Reacting impulsively, thoughtlessly, and purely emotionally leads to many a regret. Take time and come up with a plan that is well thought through. And finally, keep calm and show kindness. He began to show them kindness. Joseph took time to listen. He didn't act on impulse. He discovered that his brothers regretted what they'd done through the questions that he asked. He came up with a plan in order to see his brother Benjamin and eventually his father. The hurt that he had felt from his brothers began to heal as he learned about them. And then he began to show kindness to his brothers. He put the silver that they had paid for the grain back into the mouths of the sacks so that the pouch of silver was there for them. And they could 
use it in addition to the grain that they'd been given. But when his brothers got back, discovered the silver in the sacks, they were terrified. This was an act of kindness, and yet it created great fear for them. Paul instructed the church in Rome by telling them, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. It is, if, it is, as far, it is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear brothers, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's this about? What does this mean? You will heap burning coals on his head. I suppose that was something of the experience of his brothers. He showed them a kindness by putting the silver back into their packs. And they become immediately afraid, wondering how they're ever going to explain this if they go back to Egypt when they run out of food again. Showing a kindness to someone else can often have a formative effect when they're not expecting it. I was reading from uh, Corrie Ten Boom's, well, it was actually reading a, an account of Corrie Ten Boom and, and the issues that she had in struggling with forgiveness. And it reads this. Um, she says uh, here, I recall at the time when I was almost 70 when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You'd have thought that, having been able to forgive the guards in Ravensbrook, forgiving Christian friends would be child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside. For at last I asked God to work his miracle in me. And again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends and was restored to my father. Then, why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, rehashing the whole affair again? My friends, I thought. People I loved. If it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me to do it. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly too. Never a hint of what they were planning. Father, I cried in alarm, help me. Then it was that another secret of forgiveness became evident. It was not enough to simply say, I forgive you. I must also begin to live it out. And in my case, that meant acting as though their sins, like mine, were buried in the depths of the deepest sea. If God could remember them no more, and he had said, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more, then neither should I. 
And the reason the thoughts kept coming back to me was that I kept turning their sin over in my mind. And so I discovered another of God's principles. We can trust God not only for our emotions, but also for our thoughts. As I asked him to renew my mind, he also took away my thoughts. I must begin to live it out, she said. That was the turning point for her. I must begin to live it out. Joseph began to live it out in this act of kindness towards his brothers, which continued to shape the situation in such a way that would bring about reconciliation and peace between them. Not only do we learn from Joseph how to handle our emotions, but we can learn supremely from Jesus, whose words, even on the cross, were, Father, forgive them. This is how we handle emotions like Joseph and like Jesus. Staying with Romans 12, I've quoted from already. The scripture says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Or in the J.B. Phillips translation, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Allow God to shape Your life. He has an image of who we can become. He doesn't see a block of stone. He sees a statue of David, as it were. And beyond all of those bumps and knocks and abrasive experiences of life, we can be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. Christ.